Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Sasha Stone podcast. My name is Sasha Stone, <laughs> and this is my podcast. I, uh, I, I'm doing this podcast too for a couple of different reasons. Um, one, because I can do it because I have the time and the equipment. And two, because I think it's just always better to hear a human voice. And I would like people to hear my human voice uh, to kind of get a better idea of where I'm coming from. I don't know if anybody is interested in listening to this at all, but I feel like I want to, to lay it down. I mainly want to do this because I think that I, you know, would like to leave something of myself that, you know, it, it should probably be a book, but since I don't have time to write a book and I have a lot of things to say, I'm putting it in a podcast, which I hope that you will enjoy and find enlightening. The idea is that today, anyway, is going to be just me talking about stuff. I'm going to start with, you know, what's been happening with me over the last few months. And then I'm going to move into um, uh, the Oscars. I want to talk about the Oscars. I want to talk about what's going on with the Oscars and why they've become so alienating to so many people in this country and even to people who are just film fans and what that's about and what their future might hold and what might need to change. And then the third thing is I'm just going to ask you what have you been doing to get through this pandemic? I know it's been really hard and I, I wanted to tell you the things that I've been doing, some of which have helped me a lot. And hopefully I'm going to be able to do a thing called The Drop, which is a podcast I wanted to do but have never really gotten around to doing, which is that if you sign up for The Drop, you get something unexpected every week. You know, you don't know what it's going to be. It could be a short story. It could be a poem. It could be you know, like a, a radio theater kind of thing. But the idea is if you see the drop come in or you see it posted, then you know it's going to be something unexpected. And the rest of the time will just be me talking about stuff, which may or may not be interesting. I don't know. Uh, we'll see. For anybody who doesn't know me, I run the website awardsdaily.com for the last 20 years, wherein I've been deep diving and analyzing the Oscars, um, the Oscar race, actually. So that's from the start of the year in January all the way through to the end, to the Oscar ceremony. And the thing about that is that I think I've learned a lot from covering the Oscars. I, I, I have somehow been able to figure out how a consensus will behave um, given a certain set of circumstances. So to that end, I, I unfortunately have been able to predict the 2016 election, the 2020 election for the most part, and now I think I, I know where it's all going. And I'll be surprised if it, if it, um, if it doesn't go this way. Obviously, unpredictable things can happen, which will change the course of events significantly. Somebody could die, for instance, or there could be a world war, or, you know, a, a, a nuclear bomb could be dropped on a city, um, or we could get a pandemic. Like, there are things that can happen that 
will shift the events. Um, but but given a certain set, set of circumstances and certain types of people involved, it is possible to predict an outcome based on a few certain factors, which I've been doing um, a lot for, for the Oscar race, but which I only started doing with politics um, starting in 2016. So I grew up in California. Um, my mom was a beauty queen and my dad was a jazz drummer and uh, they had a very uh, kind of explosive marriage that only lasted until my little sister was born and then they split. My mom hooked up with a couple of different guys and she finally ended up with one guy from, um, from Jamaica actually who, who sort of helped transform her from hippie mom, cocktail waitress to a real estate mogul which happened mostly throughout her life. But as a result, we moved around California a lot. We moved to Oxnard and Simi Valley and finally settled in Ojai, California. We even lived in Malibu for a little while, which was very surreal, I might add. Um, my sister and I basically didn't attend school for like six months during that period, and we just lived in this weird house <laughs> up on the hill. It was very strange. Um, I graduated Nordoff High School in Ojai, California in 1983, which you can imagine is a lifetime ago. And then I moved to LA and I tried to be an actor, which is humiliating. Um, and then I, uh, I, you know, I eventually bounced around different colleges and I got my degree at 29 years old from uh, UCLA, even though I had gone to you know, NYU and dropped out and I'd followed this guy over here and that guy over there and had a kind of chaotic life until finally I figured out how to center it. And even then it wasn't really centered because uh, after I graduated UCLA, I went to New York's um, Columbia Film School and dropped out after a semester to chase another guy. <laughs> so after that, I kind of was just too horrified to face my life, the mess I'd made of it. And, and at the same time, um, my sister had been involved in Prodigy, which was an online community software program that predated AOL, I think. So she told me to get online. She'd met her boyfriend that way, and now they were getting married. They're still married. And so I did. I hooked up my my modem to, uh, to, you know, to AOL, and I heard those three words, you've got mail. And I swear that's, that's when I became an internet addict. It was just that. It was the dopamine hit from hearing you've got mail, I think that hooked me to the internet for life. And I really have spent half my life online. I'm not blaming AOL, I'm just saying that I think that humans have, are, are unprepared, we're unprepared for the kind of impact that the internet has had on us in terms of brain drugs, in terms of our narcissism, in terms of isolating and alienating, and in terms of the hive minds that we built up, the tribalism, the misinformation, the disinformation, all of it, casual cruelty, dehumanization. It, you know, the internet has been great in a lot of ways and terrible in a lot of ways. Um, but I, I think it's here to stay and I think we have to figure out how to, to navigate it. And I think if, if I have any purpose in life, which I don't know that I do other than raising my daughter who, whom I adore and is my greatest achievement, it's to help people with, to understand the internet 
and and its its uh, its impact on humanity. And I think I'm qualified to do that, being that I got online in 1994, and I've been living my life online since then. That means I got a career, every relationship I've ever had, all of my business, everything I learned, everything I do is online almost. You know, very few real life stuff happening around it. So I think I'm in a unique position to help people see um, the bigger picture and to, to, you know, stand up and say something when I see something is really wrong, as I do right now. So that's what I really wanted to start out with saying is that a lot of people who follow me on social media um, and were friends, you know, with me on Facebook and Twitter, um, they, you, you, you've noticed, no doubt, a change in the way that I am posting information, the way that I'm talking, the way that I'm thinking. So to, to, to explain that, I have to really start at the beginning, and this will lead me into what I want to talk about with politics. But basically, I think that, boy, such a big, big, big subject. There's too much to say. But let me try to just get through it as best I can here. Um, all right, so I think that there have been two presidents in the era of social media, Barack Obama in 2008 and Donald Trump in 2016. Both of these presidents used the internet, specifically Twitter, to build support, to build a core of um, kind of worshipers, I guess you could say, like in a, in, a, in a sort of a religious movement, both of them did. Obama sort of um, invented the idea of campaigning through social media, and he grew a lot of his support that way. and. Trump did as well. But the difference between them is that they've had this ongoing rivalry, Obama and Trump. I think that Trump wanted to run because Obama was president. I think he didn't like Obama and he wanted to, you know, get him. He wanted to best Obama. Now, Half the people listening to this will think that's because he's a racist and he hates black people. And half the people will think the Obama was, was not a very good president, right? And that, that will depend on what side of the political aisle you sit on, how you interpret that. Okay, so Obama is convinced that the reason Trump rose to power is because a black man was in power and that scared America. And so they went for this far-right guy, um, I mean, I think that might be obviously part of the story, but I think there's another story that, that needs to be told and one that I didn't realize for a long time. And that's that Obama was the virtue signal and Trump was the troll. The two sides of the way that human beings divide themselves online, define themselves and behave is good and bad virtue signal and trolling. Virtue signaling is, to me, like an actual disease on the left, even though it's it comes from a good place. But really, it's using social media to show what a good person you are. And that takes the place of actually having to be a good person, right? 
and and I was noticing this before the election in 2016 because I started writing a sci-fi novel about it actually about a divided country and on the left it would be people who were perfecting their lives and I know because I lived through it I was one of those people um, you know right at the time that Obama took power but but really even before that things don't happen you know out of thin air there's a reason for for every kind of movement in in uh, human society and I think what happened with us was we came out of the Oprah era of the 90s, you know, where parents like me had watched Oprah every day at three o'clock. And, you know, in on Oprah's show, it was, you know, talking about everything that was wrong with us and wrong with society that we could fix. How to not raise school shooters, how to not raise um, bullies, focused a lot on abuse and abuse victims. And we all went into therapy and we were all talking about our childhoods and we were trying to be better than our parents were because our parents were all, you know, scattered hippies who were narcissists and didn't raise us very well. Um, so we wanted to correct that. So I think coming out of the Oprah era was this idea of we can be more, you know, organic. We can be better eaters. We can have high self-esteem. We can raise perfect children. We can make the world a better place. It all came from that. And then Obama sort of was the leader of that movement. And and he was a, you know, an honorable, decent, intelligent, highly charismatic leader. But, you know, when he took power, that's really when a lot of the stuff on social media started to um, really evolve in the direction of social justice, right? So it was on Tumblr, my daughter pointed out to me right around 2013, there was a website called Your Fave is Problematic. And it was listing all the things that were wrong with celebrities who did like cultural appropriation. And so very quickly, this kind of social justice, this virtue signaling that Obama had um, inspired in, you know, whole generations who were coming of age online um, who are internet uh, natives, really, that didn't really remember life before the internet or cell phones or anything like that. Um, this, these generations are growing up in a time when they have their, their real selves and they have the selves that they project to the outside world. So a virtue signal is projecting that self in a good way. You know, like taking a picture of yourself recycling or, you know, Black Lives Matter on your Instagram. You know, or I follow this one YouTuber who really is just personifies this whole ideology. She's, you know, she's zero waste. She's a vegetarian, you know, um, but she's not too crazy about it. Like she, she answers all the complaints ahead of time so that people don't bitch her out in the comments, you know. But what does it do really? Does it inspire people to, you know, work hard. I mean, she, she does, she feeds the homeless and, you know, that's good. And certainly other people would do that and, and, you know, then take pictures of themselves doing it and then virtue signal that. But, you know, there, there are, there's a dark side to it, which is the dark side is the punitive aspect that your fave is problematic. The punishing of other people, cancel culture came out of this. And it just seemed to rise with, 
you know, anger and resentment that people aren't good and people aren't perfect, you know, and we're going to make them good and we're going to make them perfect as we build our utopia. Right. So that's one side of the Internet. But the other side of the Internet is trolling. Right. There's there's uh, there's Trump, who's the ultimate troll, who opposes Obama, the ultimate virtue signaler. And the fact that people think Trump is a racist and, and that Obama's black and that there's that dynamic happening only really intensifies that because a lot of trolls like to act like racists online because they know it bugs people and because it's verboten. And trolls like to say and do things that aren't allowed, that are verboten, and they, they poke they poke at the boundaries, you know. And they do it anonymously for the most part. Um, Everybody who's been online knows that trolls have been around forever. The only difference is they didn't really have much of a platform until they started developing, you know, places where they could congregate like 4chan or YouTube or Reddit or Twitter. You know, uh, this was a, a stark divide between these guys who hated, quote unquote, SJWs, social justice warriors. They were generally male but not all, but most probably, probably most white, but not all. But this anger and resentment was growing over here on this side. And then over on this side, there was continuing, we're so good, we're so utopian, we're good Puritans, and we're gonna continue to purge our village to keep it pure and righteous, you know? So I always see Obama and Trump as representing these two different ideologies as sort of a part of human evolution as we've evolved online. Like, I don't think, I don't think the effect of cancel culture would exist without the internet. And I don't think the effect of Trump would exist without the internet, certainly not without Twitter. So I think that you have to sort of balance these two ideas, the troll and the virtue signaler. And you have to start thinking about that in terms of where do you sit in that? Are you a virtue signaler? Are you a troll? Are you a little bit of both? You know, because what I started to notice with my friends and why I had to leave Facebook, I've been off Facebook for quite some time now, I think since August. So that's that's a long time to have taken a face. I used to just deactivate Facebook and then I would, um, you know, wait a little while and then I'd go back, you know, um, and engage again. But I... What finally drove me away from Facebook was when certain events started to happen and I found that I could not talk to my friends about it because they wanted me to stay in this ideological bubble that I thought we were in. And I'll explain that a little bit further to say that in 2016 I was part of the movement to um, to support and elect Hillary Clinton, right? And what I mean by that is I was very prominent online. I wrote a lot about it on Twitter and on Facebook and on Medium. Um, I was a blue check on Twitter. I was one of those people, right? So I was on the very much in the Hillary tribe, and quite prominent actually, as it turned out. I, you know, I became friends with some of the people on the Clinton campaign. They were reading my stuff, um, and a lot of my Facebook followers came out of that. Right? I wouldn't have half as many. I'd have like people who like the Oscars. It's not that many. 
But the Hillary people, like I started, I got like 3,000 Facebook followers out of that, which I know is small potatoes, but that's how you measure success online. And, um, and on Twitter, you know, same thing. I was involved in this group and, and it felt good to be part of a tribe. You know, we'd be warring with Bernie Sanders supporters all day and I would spend every single day doing this. My mom would always say to me, like, are you sure this is how you want to spend your time? Like, what about your actual career? And it didn't occur to me at the I was just like passionately involved in this crusade. But of course, it wasn't earning me a dollar. If anything, it was only helping Twitter and um, Facebook drive their content up. I mean, of course, being on social media can help you. It can help you by raising your profile. It can help you by connecting you with like-minded people and all that is really good. As a website owner, I can't, I can't not use Twitter because I have to post my links at the very least and you have to maintain a presence. It's awful, but that's just really the, the bottom line. So what happened to me was that I, I had sort of a break um, with my tribe when um, and by the way, the reason that I was so heavily involved in this was because I, like I say, I was writing that sci-fi book and it, it takes place a hundred years in the future. So I was doing all this research to try to figure out what's going to happen in a hundred years. And I hadn't been that politically involved before. But when I started to see what the predictions were for climate change, I started to get, like the scientists I was reading, very alarmed. And in 2016, I thought, we have to get a Democrat in. Any Republican is going to roll back regulations. Any one of them. Like, I was thinking so small at the time. That was what was, was driving me. That, that, that was my thing. It's like, I don't care what you think about Hillary Clinton. I don't care what you think about the, the corporate Dems or whatever. I'm going to get this person in power because any Democrat is going to fight climate change. And I knew that we were poised for three branches of government being overtaken by the GOP, which did happen until 2018 when the Democrats took the House. But so much has changed since then. Like, I, you know, I wish that that's all that I thought about because that does make it very simple. But, I mean, you know, I heard somebody say on the radio that we could survive four years of Trump, but not eight. And so, that was why I, I backed Biden initially, because I thought, again, we just have to get Trump out. Um, and the reason I knew Trump would have won was because he was a, um, a GOP and, and the Democrats had held on to the presidency for two terms. And, you know, historically speaking, using my Oscar skills, I knew that a Republican had a better chance of winning. And Democrats don't hold on to third terms, not since Roosevelt. The only president who has was Ronald Reagan. Now, Biden did just make history because I hadn't really factored in the idea of a former vice president getting back into office after having left for four years. Like, that's never happened. But this, the idea was that you could just make an even Steven switch. You could remove Trump, who was indecent, and put Biden in, who was decent, and he wasn't threatening enough to... Um, cause people to fight against him the way they did with Hillary. But that was before COVID, right? And that was before the George Floyd murder. And that was before the uprisings. And that was before cancel culture really exploded. 
So that was a long time ago. But basically what, what I mean to say here is that I was surrounding myself with people who we all belong to the same movement. Even the people closest to me. Like, it was sort of like you had to have this agreement to, in order to be close, to be friends. We were all, it was like we were all in the same church. And if I stepped out of that, that meant that I was betraying my friends and betraying the cause. And honestly, it wasn't that I stepped out of it. It was just that I started to see things a little bit differently. And that happened right around the time of the New York Times um, meltdown over the Tom Cotton op-ed. Because when I saw that happen, I saw Twitter have a fit, and then I saw the New York Times respond, and then I saw all these editors getting fired and other people getting fired for offending because of the accusation of racism. So that made me start to see things a little bit differently, just that. Then I thought, wait, so the media is protecting us by telling us a version of the truth, but that's not the truth. The truth is that the uh, protests were violent and they were scary and they did scare Americans and nobody knew what was gonna happen that night and there were curfews announced and worst of all, like uh, all of a sudden it was like there was no COVID. We'd spent you know, months in this kind of paranoid lockdown worrying about everything, standing six feet apart, not going to the market, not going to see our, our loved ones and scared out of our minds. And all of a sudden the protest, boom, everybody's out on the street, largest protest in history. Oh, but they're wearing masks, so that's okay. And no one would talk about it. Not in the media, not at the New York Times and not on Facebook. So to even talk about that was verboten. And I'm not kidding you because I got attacked for it. And then when the the continuing ongoing you know protests that's that that you know what is it a five percent of them turned violent but some of those were very violent and they burned businesses to the ground and people died like five people died but the press was invested in telling it only from one side they only wanted it to be the proud boys showed up or rittenhouse shot people like they they wouldn't tell the story fairly and it just started to bother me. It started to bother me that, the, that it was so unbalanced because now I saw the truth, which was they didn't care about telling the story as it was. They, they wanted to, they were activists. They were furthering a narrative. And it just kind of got worse from there. Like in my case, I couldn't even talk about the shootings um, or defund the police or anything without getting viciously attacked on Facebook. So for a while, I wasn't looking at my comments. I would just say what I had to say, and then I would leave. But people kept writing me privately and saying, you know, I agree with you. I don't have the guts to say it, but I'm sorry you're getting so much heat from the commenters. And I was like, oh, what could they possibly be saying? And it wasn't until a really close friend of mine, my best friend actually, was arguing with me, or I was arguing with her or something, that I realized, you know what, this isn't worth it. It's not worth sacrificing a personal relationship for this Facebook crap, you know? So that was when I left and I haven't returned. Um, I'm still on Twitter, 
And I, I understand that going back to the you've got mail, that we're addicted to social media and that the whole plan all along was to addict us to it. The algorithms are designed to be addictive, to keep us engaged, to keep us arguing with each other. Um, and it brings out the worst in us. But it's always going back to Obama the virtue signaler and Trump the troll. I think that a lot of Trump's popularity was the same reason a lot of times trolls are popular is because Trump would say what nobody else had the nerve to say. As the left became more and more um, utopia-driven and more insular and policed everything people said and were offended by everything people said and wore and did and... You know, and here's Trump on the other side saying, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to say whatever I want. I'm going to eat whatever I want. And there's nothing you can do about it. Just try to cancel me. Just try. And I mean, I can say that they did finally try to cancel him on November 3rd. Although the election proved Trump more popular than the media had portrayed him. They showed that the left was hated. The uh, Republicans picked up ran, I think, in 27 House seats and won all of them. Biden won, but really he only won because the media did such a good job convincing people that Trump um, was threatening democracy and that they had to get their ballots in early. And so they banked a lot of ballots um, early before Trump had a chance to build up his momentum, which he did in the final few weeks of his campaign. The fact that he got 73 million votes is insane. And you know, for me, like I was so, I was so horrified at, at seeing that I was being lied to and gaslighted by the media that I pulled myself out of that bubble. And I started to listen to other people, read other people, you know, and, and in so doing, I found that there are actually a lot of people just like me who had the same sort of thing happen to them, where they started to see the left as losing its mind and they started to find, you know, different voices that would talk to them in a truthful way. And so unfortunately, a lot of these people are on the right. Not all, but a lot of them. Um, a lot of the ones on the left are virulently anti-Trump. And so as we got closer to the election when the left was really going insane, they wouldn't talk about it. They wouldn't report on it. They just kept it all focused hard on Trump. So I found I couldn't really listen to them anymore either. So I had to, I had no choice but to go and listen to people on the on the right, like uh, Ben Shapiro and Dave Rubin, um, anybody who would, you know, kind of address what is actually happening in the world that I see, which is that the left is losing its mind. And no matter how many times I said that to people, they just kept saying, oh, well, Biden's not woke. It's like, what are you talking about? Biden's not going to be able to hold, it, hold back the tide. He's basically like Spawn, you know, George Spawn at Spawn Ranch. He's going to have no control over what the Democrats decide to do. He knows that. So, you know, this isn't leadership, what we're seeing in the Democratic Party right now. This is a stopgap measure to hold back the way... America is shifting, which is it's shifting right. And I've been saying this for a long time. I said it on Facebook um, and I've said it on Twitter and no one likes to hear it, but it's true. The Democrats have painted themselves into a corner and they lost, you know, all these House seats. They're going to hold on to that because 
AOC has 10 million Twitter followers and is incredibly popular and no one wants to be called out on Twitter. So what hasn't been addressed, what can't be addressed, what can't be dealt with is Obama the virtue signal and all of the cancel culture utopia building that came in the wake of his presidency, not caused by him, by the way. He's not a fan of cancel culture. But the utopia that rose in the wake of Obama, um, you know, it, it caused this kind of strange, you know, puritanical bubble where people can't talk about the truth. Any journalist will be called dragged into the public square and humiliated if they step out of line. They could lose their jobs. CNN, NPR, New York Times, they all have to be part of this bubble because they draw their feedback from Twitter. So if they get a lot of sh that's how they measure their success is how many times it was shared. So obviously, you know, they you get rewarded if you share things people want to read. So, I mean, if the New York Times had a fit because of Tom Cotton's essay, you could imagine like what the pressure is like on all those reporters to sort of meet an ideology and perpetuate a narrative that may or may not be true. So I vowed that I'm not going to be in the bubble anymore and I'm going to start talking, um, you know, frankly and honestly, and I'm going to try to not be afraid and not self-censor. And, you know, I'm going to humanize Trump supporters. And I, I watched all of Trump's rallies, every single one of them, you know, because I went looking for this kind of demon figure that the left had created that they still believe exists, a screaming, shrieking dictator. <laughs> and, you know, that's not what Trump is. He's once you kind of scrape off that top layer and you start watching him and listening to him, you know, he's he's just a. You know, he's just a TV star. Like, he's a comedian. He's a stand-up comedian. He just gets in front of them, tells, you know, does his bit for like an hour and a half. They love it. They applaud. They chant, lock him up, lock him up, lock her up, lock her up. You know, he definitely stokes, you know, the the anger of the, of the white working class by bringing up um, Ilhan Omar, which he did, you know, a lot. But it wasn't just her. I mean, he went after everybody and they hated everybody who stood in Trump's way. So but for the most part, the rallies and the Trump supporters that I saw from watching like right side broadcasting on YouTube, they were joyful people. They were happy. They were celebratory. They loved Trump and they were excited about America. And I didn't see a lot of negativity. I didn't see a lot of hatred. And that's how the media portrays it. But it really doesn't reflect the reality that I saw. Now, did that make me want to vote for him? No. I mean, as I said, climate change is my number one issue. But I have to tell you, Trump, by the end, was able to stand up to cancel culture in a way that Joe Biden never will, and no Democrat ever will. So it's going to have to fall on a Republican in four years. And believe me, that's exactly what's going to happen to stand up to it because most Americans can't stand it. They don't want it to be their future. <laughs> they don't want it to be in their government, but they're most of them afraid to say so, right? So I thought, I'm not gonna be afraid. So what am I gonna risk? Well, you know, the Hollywood reporter, Scott Feinberg got mad at me and screamed at me on Twitter and then unfollowed me in a huff. My friends write me, you know, my one of my really good friends was like, kept writing me angrily, you know, is there something wrong with you? You know, maybe you have a brain tumor. 
Um, and, you know, it just, it really bothered them. It hurt them. It bothered them. It was like I was, you know, in the Amish community and I was saying, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm going to go to Vegas and I'm going to live a really, a life of debauchery. You know, I'm going to do drugs. I'm going to drink. I'm going to have as much sex as I want. And uh, sorry, see ya. Um, or maybe worse, maybe just saying like, I don't believe in God. Like maybe it's that, maybe it's that fundamental of a betrayal for them. Um, and again, I want to emphasize, I'm not saying I became a Trump supporter. All I did was humanize Trump and his supporters. That's it. So now I have, you know, uh, a much more open mind. If I see someone that I think is playing to the narrative, a journalist or a story, I immediately turn it off because I can't hack it. And that's true on the right as well. Like I, I, you know, because I didn't know this world at all and I immersed myself completely in it. You know, there are people I can't listen to, you know, not because they upset me necessarily, but because they're, they're just in the, in the delusion zone. You know, and I understand where it's coming from. Like they really can't accept the fact that Trump lost, but you know, people like Ben Shapiro and um, Tim Poole um, and Matt Walsh uh, and Megyn Kelly and people like that who are on the right, um, they are, you know, kind of sober-minded people that'll talk about things in an honest way without feeling an allegiance. And, you know, I think on the Trump side, if you break allegiance, I think you get a lot, in a lot of trouble, just like people on the left do. So I feel like if you're on the Trump side, the really intense Trump side, like Dan Bongino, um, you're, you can't speak in a critical way about Trump or the Trump movement. It has to be all positive. You have to believe everything Trump says, all of his tweets you're supportive of, um, every crazy thing he does you believe in and you're okay with it. Uh, I, you know, that's all the way on the other end of the spectrum. So. I, you know, I, I feel like I'm more sane now because I was able to find what I consider to be the, you know, the whole truth of everything. Who are these people? Who are we? What are we fighting for? And I always come back to that same thing of like Obama and Trump have been in this war. Obama just won and he's, you can tell he's very happy about it. Um, he's definitely doing the victory lap and you can see the, just look at how the press worships Obama. Look at the stories. And because, you know, the, the hive mind loves Obama. And so if you post a positive Obama, you're going to get, you know, lots of likes and engagement and lots of brain drugs. You know, they love Michelle Obama. Like, it's very much a, aren't we, you know, we're good people and he's good and we're going to show how good we are. Versus, you know, a lot of people who, show, who support Trump are too afraid to show that because... That's the anti-virtue signal, right? And they don't want to reveal it because a lot of them could actually literally lose their jobs over it. I have a lot of mixed feelings about this election because I, I was so horrified by what happened on the left and what continues to happen that I don't feel like I can vote Democrat. I can't, I won't until this is dealt with. Like I won't vote for any Democrat in the state. I won't vote for any Democrat nationally until they figure this out. I just found out the Burbank School District where I live is banning To Kill a Mockingbird and um, Grapes of Wrath and of, of Mice and Men, I think. 
And so they're doing it because obviously there's got to be like the N-word, right? Maybe one of them doesn't, of mice and men have a rape in it. That could be that. Um, but look, if you're protecting your kids from books like that, that's, you know, where safetyism has, gets its roots. And, and how are you preparing these kids to grow up and live their lives? If you're teaching them that this book can destroy them, how in the world are they going to deal with real life? Now, I feel like you're raising hothouse flowers that can't survive in the outside world. They can only survive in a very micromanaged, um, you know, cocoon. Forget about going backpacking through Europe. What if you hear an off-color joke in a, in a bar? What if someone asks you, have you ever read To Kill a Mockingbird? And you, you, like, you turn bright red and you're like, no, that book, that book has the N-word in it. Imagine having that conversation. <laughs> I mean, it's insane, right? I, I, don't, I don't know how you justify that and still kind of survive and have a thriving artistic community. So, um, and that brings us to part two. Are you enjoying this conversation or is it beyond horrifying? I hope it's, it's good and not horrifying. Who knows, right? Um, so the Oscars, let's talk about the Oscars. So a couple of things happened to me last week, three things. The first was I heard from somebody who I won't name, uh, who lives in New York um, and is in their 20s saying that they, they don't trust or watch the Oscars anymore. They're young people. They said they love movies, they were a filmmaker uh, graduate, but they noticed that the Oscars were rewarding people based on their marginalized status versus the quality of the work. They were particularly annoyed that the movie, the Flor uh, the movie, Fl I think it's Florida Project. It's not a Florida Project, it's just Florida Project. Maybe it's the For Florida Project. Uh, didn't get a nomination for Best Picture. Um, and because it was directed by a white guy, right? So that was the first thing I, I heard. And then the second thing was I was corresponding with somebody on Twitter and the DMs, and they said the same thing. They said, you know, I, I'm a, I've watched the Oscars my whole life, but right around, you know, 2008, <laughs> 2008, right? The virtue signal came to, to office, and things really changed. They changed in the Oscar race too. Like that really put white people on notice, because Obama was the president, and more than that, he was the leader of a movement, and suddenly the greatest sin became discrimination or racism, because it was against our beloved president, right? That's sort of how we saw it, I think, and that's why we all felt collective shame, right, about how the Oscars have been so white all these years, and I know I did. Readers of my side know that I was advocating for for um, inclusion starting in 2001 with Halle Berry. And I actually, funnily enough, lost a lot of readers for that. I love people stopped reading my site because it became too much of an activist ag advocacy site. And it was less about who deserves to win and more about righting the wrongs of the past and righting the wrongs of society. Well, so I, I think that, you know, is a good discussion to have, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. But I also think that we've gone past that point now because now the Oscars have been mandated to be inclusive, mandated, right? Not just 
And, you know, and anybody can talk their way around this, as I have done, because believe me, this isn't something anybody wants to get caught criticizing. Not in our community, but... Um, The thing I don't like about it is that it, it it does what a lot of cancel culture does. It presumes guilt. It presumes that the academy is racist. It presumes that their choices have all been racist and that they are white supremacists and that they were holding back minorities. When the fact is that the Oscars represent sort of the demographics of this country, which is 70%, 60 to 70% white. I think you have to really talk about, um, you have to absolve people now at this point from guilt if you want the Oscars to survive because right now what they are is they're like the Stanley Kramer Award you know the Stanley Kramer Award was like it was about um, you know awarding people who do good things who do who have you know good intentions and make the world a better place but the Oscars aren't supposed to be that um, and if you think about it when Trump was elected um, in 2016 there hasn't been a film with a white protagonist except Green Book which was raked over the coals for being racist. And the voters felt so ashamed by Green Book that they awarded, I think, Parasite the next year, even though Parasite is totally deserving. Um, there was definitely a need to, if Parasite hadn't won, and if one of the other movies had won, all of the acting nominations and um, Best Picture would have gone to all white actors, all white people. And that couldn't, that, that was something that could not have taken place. Like they had to, you know, even if they didn't see Parasite, they likely would have voted for it. But I, I do think that a lot of people saw it and really liked it. It's a great movie. Um, but there's no doubt that I think that people were working from that sort of point of view. Um, and so I wonder now with Obama, I mean with, sorry, with Biden in power, what that will mean for the Oscars. Um, with the mandates, I feel like that was a mistake. I don't think that they should mess with narrative at all. I don't think that they should tell productions that they have to have these things met or they can't be awarded. That takes away the whole point of having Oscars, which are supposed to reward high achievement in film. Now, it's great if you could suggest that people diversify, but you know, to mandate it, what if you're just a guy with a camera in some country and you have like two people who are your crew and they're white people. What are you gonna do? Like if it's the greatest movie of the year, not award it because it doesn't meet those criteria. So this is a, also a, con a very controversial subject, but I, I just kind of feel like I, you know, what, I, what worries me about the Oscars more than the inclusivity mandate, um, is really that it excludes, that they exclude so much of this country. And I, I wouldn't have known that or even thought about it if I didn't spend time on the right as I've been doing now and, you know, meeting a lot of people that I think are, it's an untapped resource um, of people that could be buying tickets to movies, that could be watching these movies. And, and it, you know, the, the intolerance is coming from the left, not the right. They don't have intolerance against, as far as I can tell, the only intolerance they have is the fact that, that the left is so intolerant of them and their views and condescending and sanctimonious. And um, I just think that at this point, the Oscars might have bottlenecked, you know, because it wasn't even just that they're left and right anymore. It's like there isn't even any question. 
Like when, when I first started, there was always the argument of, should the Oscars be political? Should people talk about politics? And nobody liked that, right? That was um, considered negative. Now it's, it's like, if you don't talk about politics, you'll get criticized. Uh, anyway, I think it's unhealthy personally for art and for this country and for the Oscars to have it be so divided. And if I ruled the world, I would make people on the left more tolerant. I would have them be able to see Ben Shapiro as a human being and not as whatever they decide that he is, you know. He's an Orthodox Jew. He has his religious beliefs, you know, and those are definitely in, in contrast and contradict um, what people on the left think. But like I look at this guy, Dave Rubin, and if you read his book, um, it's called Don't Burn This Book. He talks about how he left the left because the left had become so insane. And um, he talks about how he, he's gay and he's married um, and he has a kid and, and he knows Ben Shapiro doesn't approve of it because Ben Shapiro is an Orthodox Jew. But Ben Shapiro says, I don't have a right to legislate your life and I would never do that. And they can still be friends, right? Don't you want to live in a world like that? Like, don't you want to live in a world where people can see each other as human beings? And not as, you know, stereotypes? Um, I do. Like, I, I don't like living in a bubble. I, I really don't. Like, I'm, I'm not, you know, I like people who see other people with respect, see them as human beings, respect their choices. And honestly, you know, what I saw reflected on the right and the Trump rallies was more was closer to that than what was reflected on the left, which is we want unity, we're all about peace and love, but no, really you're not. Because the dark side of virtue signaling, the dark side of, of what the left had become was this uh, unfiltered, nonstop, passionate hatred toward Trump. And I have to say that for me, after a while, like, I don't know if it was COVID, um, I had a really, really dear person die this year. He was my ex-boyfriend. I went with him for about four years. It was not a very good relationship, it's true. I mean, he, I, I was like his Sunday night girl and I never had him as a real boyfriend and he would never commit to me and he, because he said he couldn't be monogamous. <laughs> but, you know, we developed this great friendship and he was, uh, he was a extraordinary human being and he's irreplaceable. But he was, you know, he was too addicted to drugs and uh, he couldn't stop. And I guess I didn't know that he was doing heroin, but he told me that he had been a heroin addict, but that he couldn't do it anymore because his body wouldn't um, get high off of it, that he had worn something out or you know he told me that and I believed him but but then his friend told me you know that he died and I you know for me it was such a huge loss because he was one person maybe the only person that I knew that I could talk to about stuff like this that I'm talking to you about right now the stuff that I know people would flip out about on Twitter and do all the time and he just had an open mind and an open heart, and he didn't hate people. And, you know, I, I can't, couldn't watch after a while all this hatred on my feeds every day. Vicious, angry hate. 
aimed at Trump, aimed at his family, his hair, his hands, his sex with his daughter, how he's a pathological liar, he's a dictator, he's a fascist. Like, you know, I do a lot of deep diving into things, rabbit holing, and one of the ways, and one of the things I've looked at is the Salem witch trials and the Holocaust is one of my lifelong obsessions. And I can tell you that, you know, fascism, fascism isn't what Trump was doing because fascism requires uniformity and conformity of beliefs. The reason that they bring in the military and they shoot you on the spot and they put you in concentration camps is to kind of back up that idea of one state, one people, one chosen people. And that isn't what Trump was representing. If anything, the fascist stuff is all happening on the left. That's where they're having the policing of speech and the burning of books and the censoring of material and, you know, canceling people. But the real danger, and I don't think it's fascism, by the way, on the left. I mean, it's potentially totalitarian, what somebody I heard once call soft, to soft totalitarianism. But, but the problem is dehumanization, right? Dehumanization is how you get to six million Jews dying in the Holocaust. It's how you get to Germans being okay with them being taken out of their homes, putting in, putting on trains and being sent off to concentration camps without even knowing they're going to be being gassed. Just the idea that they could be taken out and sent away is dehumanization. And Trump for sure did that with the migrants in his, you know, at the beginning of his term, without a doubt. Um, and I thought it was wrong then, but I also think it's wrong to see so much dehumanization coming from the left where it got so bad that I think that they could have murdered Trump and and, uh, and they would have cheered. And then that's why you see on the streets the, you know, the, the battles and the fighting and the beating up of Trump supporters. Um, that is also dehumanization because they get their justification from the media and from social media that these people are not human. They're not worthy of your respect um, or even of their own safety because they don't deserve it. Um, yeah, it's just not my thing at all. So part of leaving Facebook was just to get away from that. Like I couldn't watch it anymore. Even now I can't really watch it. You know, they can't let go of Trump even though he's lost. They just can't let go. It's a, it's an, it, it is a pathological hatred. They just hated him. They hated him, and they still hate him for, you know, whatever it is that they hate him for. I mean, I, I don't have passionate hatred toward Trump. I, I did. I used to. But, um, but you can't get to passionate hatred unless you're sort of involved, you know, heavily in a movement that you believe in that he's threatening. And since I don't belong to any movement anymore, you know, I don't, I don't see that. Uh, as much. I also have watched the left call everybody a racist, including me, repeatedly. Um, and, you know, other people that I respect and admire being called racists constantly, getting fired for being thought of as racist. And, you know, after a while, it's just like, well, you know, why should I believe this accusation? Um, so I guess if you think Trump is a racist and you think that justifies your anger and your hatred, then, then that's fine. That's, that's what you think and that's what you believe. And I would never dissuade you of that notion. In fact, I don't want to dissuade you of any notion. I really just want to 
be able to communicate with people, you know, from all different backgrounds and ideologies. And I, I don't want to belong to any church that tells me who I can and can't talk to. So in terms of the Oscars, if it was me, I would think bigger. I would start making movies that conservatives would like, not just movies that people on the left approve of. I would not make movies nonstop activism, nonstop, you know, this is our utopia. This is what our life should be like. You know, it's, it's boring, frankly. Movies, you know, that kind of poke the beast, that challenge the norm, that upend expectations, you know, that make you think about stuff. Like, that's why we have movies, right? If you need a belief system and you need to, to have it, you know, instilled in you and your children, then go to church. Find a church or make your own church. But art has to be, and actually journalism, quite frankly, should be outside the realm of that. It shouldn't be activist because, you know, what are you talking about? You're talking about like, you know, um, art that was, that could only have been dedicated to Jesus Christ for hundreds of years, right? Beautiful art, but, you know, is that, is that provocative? Is that meaningful? I guess to some people it is. All right, so that's the first podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. It was just a little, little oh, no. Okay, so part three. Now I just want to, like, stop the heavy talk and talk about some how you're doing during this pandemic. Um, I have had a pretty hard time because of what I've just talked to you about, this kind of tribal affiliation and pulling out of it and, and having people be really angry at me still, by the way. But I, I do feel like I'm doing the right thing. Um, in poking the beast. I, I have to feel like I'm doing the right thing because the alternative is conformity. The alternative is going along with it. And, um, and I'm just not built that way. So I'm not doing it. I, you know, it felt, started to feel very cult-like to me and leaving Facebook felt like leaving a cult. Um, so speaking of cults, there are two really good shows on that you should watch and they're both about the Nexium cult which is so strange. Um, but, you know, I had, do have to admit that I do have a sort of a fascination with cults and why people join them. Um, but this one, one is on stars and it's called Seduced. And that's about India Oxenberg, who's one of the cult members. I have to say probably the most interesting story is hers. Um, and then there's uh, The Vow. Um, on HBO Max, and that is a, 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 a you know a longer series involving much many more people, and is probably better produced. But I would recommend both of them, um, and you know just to sort of distract you from what's going on right now. I would I would uh, unplug from politics. You know it's going to work out. However, it's Trump is lost. You know and and Biden's winning. You know. But I don't think it's anything you need to worry about. It's not the end of the democracy. He's not it's not crystal knocked. You know, you, you can be assured that Trump is just saving his reputation for when he leaves. He, he knows he's lost his race. He's fighting at the last minute, you know, because this isn't a guy who's going to ever walk away easily from this. There's just no way. He had to make a big show before he left. So, um, but Biden will, for better or worse, be our president. Um, I wish he would stand up to cancel culture, but I don't think that's happening. I, I just don't think he has in him 
a desire to fight that. You know, he's got enough to worry about. So forget about that. Like, that's not going to go away, cancel culture, until the Republicans take over and just, at the very least, make sure it doesn't get into government. But, you know, what I've also been doing, and, and this has actually helped me more than probably anything else, which is that I stopped watch. I don't watch the news at all. I mean, for a while there, I was watching Fox because I really did want to get that alternative point of view, but I certainly will never, ever watch CNN or MSNBC ever again in my life, probably, unless they dramatically change. But no, I don't have any desire to, to look at that. It's just uh, propaganda, but um, not that Fox isn't. It's just that it's the other side of it, so at least you're getting kind of a balanced view. But I go on YouTube and I look at these ASMR videos, and... Um, and ASMR is a kind of a, um, a sensory response. It stands for like automatic sensory response, something like that. But it, I don't know if you ever felt this, but I have always felt it as a kid, you know, when someone would touch my hair or play with my hair or touch my back or comb or brush my hair. Um, it would stimulate kind of a calming effect, sort of a tingly feeling. And I always thought it was just some strange thing. Like I never knew it was it was something that other people felt, but apparently it is. And, and some people feel it apparently and some people don't. So I've been watching that a lot, but I found one that I really like, which is her name is Gentle Whispering and, and her name is Maria and she's from Russia and she's got blonde hair. And, um, and she has two different YouTube channels. By the way, I got the premium YouTube because I can't stand the ads. And so if you do watch YouTube a lot, you should get the premium um, or use an ad blocker or something so that you don't have to see the annoying ads because it ruins the whole experience. But that's how they make their money. So, you know, um, she does ASMR better than anybody. And I love her videos. But more than that, she's, she's an encouraging and uplifting and um, nurturing person. And she has helped me a lot to feel better about myself, um, to take care of myself more, um, and to, you know, spend time doing things like my nails every week, you know, um, cutting my own hair, you know, moisturizing my face, you know, cooking. She just is a really wonderful person, um, you know, playful and funny and sweet and and, you know, it, it's sad that, like, we're stuck in our apartments from COVID and we have to, like, look at YouTube for friendship. But that's the way it is, so. I watch these ASMR videos, you know, and I watch a lot of YouTube, actually, more than probably I do anything else because YouTube is, um, you know, it's free from the madness of, for the most part, of social media and, um, and I like that people speak directly to you. And, you know, I like that there are a lot of different people trying to offer you a lot of different things to improve your life, whether it's cooking or diet or exercise or, you know, deck, you know, custom building a van to travel around the world with, you know, how to make the perfect cup of tea I saw the other day from some English guy. How to make the perfect cup of tea is that you have to let the water boil completely and pour it over and let it steep for three minutes. Seems pretty uh, logical but um, and obvious, but uh, I liked that he went and took the time to show that. 
So, you know, YouTube is, is potentially a life changer for me. It really is. I was never really into it before COVID, but suddenly it's become something that I really do um, appreciate. So uh, uh, welcome to the podcast and we'll see what happens. And thank you for listening. You can find this link on sashastone.com, which is where I'll be storing it. And there'll be a link to iTunes as well. And whatever you're doing, um, I hope that you are having a wonderful day and that you aren't getting too stressed out. Thank you for listening. Thank you.